standing for the reading of God's word. Our scripture passage this morning comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I gain nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. And here's our passage for this morning. It does not dishonor others, and it is not self-seeking. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Good morning again, everybody. I'm Logan, one of the pastors here. I was told I needed to announce that there is a work day next Saturday. We had to reschedule it. So if you want to spend some great time getting to know people, serving, cleaning up our beautiful campus that we have, we would love to invite you to join and be a part of that. Um, Now, let's get into this passage. Uh, This fall, we have been asking the question, what does it mean to love like Jesus? Jesus, right? He famously said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And that sounds great. I think we all like the sound of that. I think everybody in the world likes that, the sound of that. But historically, that has been a problem for the church. I think today, what the world often sees of Christianity is not a people known for loving one another, but a people known for bitter culture wars or churches that are split in half over petty arguments or churches that have retreated into themselves and walled themselves off from the world out of fear or or even worse, out of a judgmental self-righteousness that says we're the good people in here and we're just going to huddle up and we're going to wait until Jesus comes and saves us. And you know the church today is not alone in those struggles. The problems go way back. That's what we're seeing here in 1 Corinthians. These problems go all the way back to the earliest points of the New Testament. That's why Paul was writing this letter. This was a letter and especially this was a, a passage meant to redirect a church that had gotten off course. A church that thought it was doing great, right? The church was growing, it was full of gifted people, and yet in the midst of that, Paul says that they lacked the most important thing, the only true real sign of connectedness to Jesus. They lacked love. So this whole passage We might know it from weddings, but it's not just meant to be some lovely poem. This is actually a rebuke. And here, this morning, I think we're getting to one of the most difficult correctives yet. He says that when we love, 
If we're going to love like Jesus, we do not dishonor others, and we are not self-seeking. Love does not dishonor others, and it's not self-seeking. So we're going to dig into that this morning. And as we do, I want to tell us three things, which are nearly impossible for me to see, but hopefully you can. It says narcissistic self-love breaks down community. But true love, true love creates joyful connection that binds us to God and his people. And then the third thing I want to show you is that that kind of love can't be manufactured. So let's talk about it. Narcissistic self-love, it, it breaks down community. Sometimes you get surprised when you start prepping for a sermon, when you start digging into a passage. And I was kind of blown away this week as I looked into this first clause. I actually think the NIV, our translation that we use here, does an excellent job uh, translating that first thing, that love is not, uh, it does not dishonor others. Maybe you're like a King James person, if you're familiar with that translation. It says, Love doth not behave itself unseemly. And in an effort to kind of modernize that and make it more acceptable to modern ears, other translations have made it say love is not rude. But this is deeper than rudeness. Love does not dishonor others. It actually gets us a lot closer to the real meaning. Because this is not about, you know, burping at the dinner table. Right? It's not about leaving the toilet seat up. This is not about rudeness. The other moment, actually, where Paul uses that word about dishonoring people is in chapter 7. He says, if anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin that he's engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do it. He should get married. So Eugene Peterson, when he's translating this uh, word, he actually translates it, love does not force itself on others. This idea, it's about acting in a way that's based off of your own desires to the detriment of somebody else. And so what Paul's telling us in this one and in the next clause, love is not self-seeking, he is talking, us, talking to us about this worldview that says, my preferences, my desires, my passions, my aspirations, my plans, my goals in life, my perspective, that's what's most important. That's what's ultimately valuable to me. That's what I want to see happen in the world. The gent gentlest expression of that attitude we see even in a child in our natural instincts towards selfishness has anybody taken a, a preschooler to a birthday party do you remember what that experience is like what happens when it gets to the point where the little boy or little girl has to start opening their presents and the kids you just have to wall them off and hold them back because the other kids can't resist, right? They all swarm to the presence. They're all trying to pull off the paper. They're grabbing the toy away and they're looking at it because they can't withhold that desire within them. They want the toy. They want the presence. Well, we see it in all of us from an early age. We think about our own wants, our own desires, before we think about others. That's the gentlest form of it. But in its most grotesque form, 
those same tendencies, when they are unchecked in our lives, when they, when they are in full bloom, well, they become abuse, forcing yourself on others. They become manipulation. They become self-justification, right? An inability to admit that you've ever done any wrong. An inability to apologize. Steamrolling people to get the things that you want. See, what, what Paul describes here is a narcissistic self-love where instead of looking to other people and seeing them relationally, you start to see other people as objects, tools for achieving your goals or perhaps obstacles that are in the way of what you really want. This narcissistic self-love is, is about seeing people as objects or seeing them as obstacles, not loving them as people. And if they're struggling with that in Corinth, well, it, it should be no surprise that we struggle with that today. I think now more than ever, we live in this culture that exalts the self, don't we? People tell you, if you're looking for answers, if you want to find truth, well, what do you need to do? You need to find yourself. You need to look deep down within for the answer. Search your heart. We have been indoctrinated ever since we were small to believe in independence. Independence is one of the main values of this culture we live in, but Christ has called us to a loving interdependence. The gospel actually says that in Christ, we have a new identity. We talked about this a second ago in the Discover class. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. That's our identity, but that's really hard for us. Because our culture, it's always telling us the opposite. It's saying, you are the center. You're the one that matters the most. You need to exalt yourself. Add to that, of course, our own hearts. There is you and me, our own sinful, deeply rooted tendency towards self-righteousness. It's not just the culture out there that's saying you should exalt the self, but we have this inner voice, all of us, that's desperately trying to assert our own rightness, to claim and cling to our own goodness, to justify and, and explain all that our own actions as if they were good. And, and we have this voice that is allergic to any sort of criticism. If you ever saw the TV show Parks and Recreation, it's the sitcom, there's this character on there who's uh, spoiled, self-entitled. Her name's uh, Mona Lisa. And there's this point where she's talking to her, her dad, and, and the line she says is, I have never done anything wrong ever in my life. And I think those words might be the exact refrain inside of our self-seeking hearts. I've never done anything wrong ever in my life. Now, we might be too smart by this point, to say it out loud, in the same way we don't rush and try to open somebody else's birthday presents, 
what happens in your heart when somebody tries to correct you? What happens when somebody pulls you aside and, and tries to say, hey, you hurt me when you did this? What happens when you're asked to admit that you messed up or that you might be actually wrong about something? There's that voice, right? That voice we all have to fight against. That voice that says, oh, I have to prioritize myself. I have to protect myself. I have to assert myself. I'm right. This week, I found out that my, my bicycle was recalled. And uh, I don't know a whole lot about bicycles, but, but I went to the shop, and I brought my bike in, and the guy at the shop told me that they have discovered that the glue that keeps this like pedal crank thing that I'm showing you up here, the glue that keeps it together, under certain conditions, it can just like turn back into liquid. Now, I didn't even know this was two parts, to be honest with you. Like, it, I just thought it was one thing. It's so solid. It's so tightly bound together. But he's telling me that, you know, under certain conditions, whatever it is, this, this bond can just disappear and your pedals can fall off. <laughs> and I don't know if you know a lot about biking, but if your pedals fall off, it's not good. You don't want it. Well, as I was thinking about this, it, occurs, it occurred to me that this is the same effect that narcissistic self-love has inside the church. That when we become fixated on our own needs, our own desires above everyone else, our own goals, our own preferences, our own rightness, we lose our connection with others. Even one person living that way inside of our community can change the whole chemistry of the church. Our impact, the, our, our relationships are impacted by it. Our bond starts to break down. When we harm one another, when we manipulate each other, when we force our own agendas, when we refuse to admit our own wrongs, the community starts to disconnect. We detach. Our bonds weaken, and eventually they disappear. In other words, we can't love one another. Narcissistic self-love, it, it breaks down community. But the flip side of that is that true love does the opposite. True love actually creates a joyful connection to God and his people. Now, for that first point, I, I was using the term narcissistic self-love, and I realize there's a lot to that, but, but I, I wanted to add that descriptive word at the front because I want you to know the Bible doesn't say all self-love is bad. In fact, Jesus, he pretty clearly teaches we're supposed to love ourselves. The greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as what? Yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. That means that a Christian love is is not this narcissistic, self-seeking love that dishonors others, but it's also not a self-hating, over-functioning love that ignores your own happiness, that seeks out difficulty at every turn. Have you ever met Christians like that? People who act like it's some godly thing just to be miserable all the time? They say, you know, if you're really holy, then you're going to be serious. You're going to be somber. And you're going to be burnt out. Because you're going to spend all your energy serving everybody else but yourself while you completely neglect your own well-being. That's not biblical. That's not what we're supposed to do. Jesus actually said very clearly that he came that we would have life and have it to the fullest, right? That we would have life and have it abundantly. In another place in John where he's telling us why we should love each other, how we should love each other, he he wraps it up by saying, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. In other words, Christians are not people who love themselves less. They're people who love themselves more. Because it's it's not a narcissistic, self-focused self-love, but it's a a joyful, holy self-love. It's a self-love that is connected to the Father, that is seeking joy and rest and delight Not in achieving some goal, not in getting your own way, but you're seeking it through life-giving connection to Jesus and his people. Notice I said Jesus and his people. It's this love that pulls us into community. A true Christian self-love connects us with one another. So let me illustrate that for a second. In Luke chapter 10, there's a passage where a man is discussing this great commandment with Jesus. He tells Jesus the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then Luke chapter 10 tells us, oh, I've got some slides. All right. Luke chapter 10 tells us, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbor? There it is again, right? The self-justification. He isn't motivated by love. He's asking about loving your neighbor, but it tells us right there. He wasn't concerned with his neighbor. He had a goal in mind that he wanted to achieve. He wants to know that he's all right. He wants to know he's innocent. He wants to know he's done enough. He wants to know he's off the hook. And Jesus responds famously, with the parable of the Good Samaritan. That's actually the image that we've been using as our sermon art for this series. It's the story that Jesus tells where he's talking to a Jewish man in a Jewish crowd, and he shares the story about a Samaritan. 
And in, in that day, the Samaritans were a despised people. They were a people thought of as uh, racial half-breeds. They were thought of as religious heretics. They were extreme outsiders. They were poorly treated. And he tells the story of a man, presumably a Jewish man like everyone in the crowd, who was attacked, robbed, beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. And most of you, if you've been around the church, you've probably heard this story, right? First, a priest walks by and passes by and, and, and doesn't touch him, ignores him. Secondly, a Levite does the same thing. These holy, well-educated, righteous, supposedly people pass him by. But then finally, the Samaritan passes him by. But instead of just walking by, he stops. And we read in verse 34 of Luke chapter 10 that he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two days' wages and gave it to the innkeeper. And looking at him, he said, and when I return, I'll reimburse you for any extra expenses that you had. And so this Samaritan, he comes and he, he ministers to this man at the cost of his own time, at the cost of his own money, at the cost of his own strength, potentially at the cost of his own safety and well-being. And it's, it's kind of wild that Jesus uses this guy as the example of the godly, selfless love we're commanded to give. Because, of course, not only did it go against all the expectations of the crowd about who was going to be the holy person, who was going to do the right thing, but it also answers the guy's question. This guy who was trying to justify himself, trying to know if he was living a holy life. Do you see that? I mean, according to the Old Testament law, there could have been very good reasons why the priest and Levite passed him by. They could have been, their goal could have been to stay clean, to follow the law, to be righteous. But the one who honored God was the one who obeyed the greatest commandment. The one who was righteous before the law maybe broke a ceremonial law in the process. But he was the one who loved his neighbor as himself. And I said that just a second ago, this self-seeking love, it breaks down community. It pulls community apart. But this kind of love, this true, Christian, sacrificial, selfless love, it binds community together. Christian love, the true love that Paul is calling us into is a love that crosses boundaries. It's a love that builds bridges. It's a love that builds connection and makes community where there was no community before. But we also see in that parable that that kind of love is costly. Loving that way, it always comes with a cost for the person who's offering it. What does it cost? Well, it costs, perhaps, your own convenience. It might cost you your preferences. It might 
cost you some of your own comfort. But here's the really cool thing. You know what it doesn't cost? It doesn't come at the cost of your own joy. No, it's in, in fact, it's just the opposite, right? When we love this way, we experience joy like no other. When we love people this way, our joy is made complete. Christ's joy is in us. Our joy becomes full when we love our neighbor as ourselves. So maybe it's worth us just asking, who are our neighbors? Who is it that God is calling us to cross over and meet up with? And what's the cost? What's the cost that God might be asking us to bear that we could welcome them? That we could help them to heal? That we could bring them into a place where they could be made whole? Maybe he's, maybe it's not a big one. Maybe he's just asking us to make this space a little more friendly for unchurched people. More comfortable chairs, maybe. <laughs> maybe he's asking us to change the carpet. Maybe he's asking us to add a different service. Or maybe it's something else. Maybe he's asking us to actually get out of this place and go be the church out there more often. And maybe it's for you something totally different. You know, maybe it's a more personal application. Maybe there's a relationship in your life where he's calling you to bear a much more personal cost. Maybe there's a relationship in your life where he's asking you to consider your own self-seeking behavior and to humble yourself and to move towards that person. Maybe it's someone you've, you've injured. And to instead move towards them and help them to heal. See, narcissistic self-love, it turns people into objects. It treats them like obstacles. And it destroys the possibility of community. But a Christ-centered, sacrificial love, it bears the burdens of others. And it bonds us together so that all of us, as one, can experience the joy and delight of God himself. But that kind of love, it's important for us to understand it cannot be manufactured. We say this a lot up here, but I would love it if just reading these passages would change my heart forever. I would love it if getting up on this, whatever, stage and preaching to you would solve this once and for all for our church. It would be great if, if we could just love perfectly from this moment on. But I think there's two very practical takeaways we need to see from this letter. The first is this. In the same way, that self-justifying man who came up to Jesus and was asking him those questions. In the same way, 
that he needed Jesus to call him into something better. We need one another if we're going to grow. We need to develop in the church a habit of healthy correction. You know, Paul wrote this letter to a church who just couldn't see how badly they were messing up. In fact, I think this chapter, this poem, is a great example of what I'm talking about. A great example of the kind of healthy correction we all need. It probably would have been so much easier for Paul when he heard about what was happening in Corinth to just move on. It would have been so much easier to ignore it. He had a lot of things going on. But instead, he took the time to sit down, to write. I mean, even to write very beautifully, right? And to speak the truth. Firmly, clearly, but also gently. When I think about what a healthy church looks like, I do not imagine a church that always loves perfectly. I am under, you know, no illusions here. I, I don't think there's going to be some moment where for, for the rest of time we're just all going to be holding hands together and singing in harmony and unanimously on the same page about every decision that gets made. That's not going to happen. But what I do imagine and what we are called to is to be the kind of community where we're in the habit of hearing and responding to healthy, loving correction. And not just when things are, like, extreme. <laughs> not just when things are so bad that it seems like they're going to explode and destroy the church. I mean, just regular stuff. The regular habit where, where we love each other enough to say, hey, you know, because I love you, and because I know that you love me, and because we both love Jesus, I want to tell you about a place where I think maybe you can grow a little. Or, hey, I need to tell you about a moment that you may not realize it, but you said something, and it actually really hurt me. And I've been dealing with it for the last few weeks. A healthy church is a group of people who know we're going to have moments like that. And when we do, it doesn't mean it's time to head for the hills. It's not time to just run and find some other church where people won't talk to you that way. It's actually, that's the moment. That's where the power is. That's the, the point where Jesus is actually going to work. Where he's going to make us more like him. It's a place where we can be more like Jesus where we can learn to love the way that he loves. Does that make sense? And, and I want to be clear. I'm telling you I need that too. Okay? I'm just a regular Christian. I need to keep saying that to you. I know I'm up here and I'm preaching and stuff, but that's all I am. I'm just a regular Christian. I don't have any superpowers. I am a part of this body, just like you're a part of it. And just like you, I have some strengths, and I have a lot of weaknesses. And 
And I really trust and believe that, that God has put us all together at this time because we have a part to play in each other's stories. And if we love like Jesus, then even those moments that seem tough, those moments of correction, those things are going to deepen our bonds and strengthen our attachments to each other. You know, I want us to be the kind of community where, where narcissism can't even exist because we're just so used to owning up and admitting our mistakes. We're so used to, to speaking truth to one another and calling out the best in each other. Where we're so deeply committed and, and connected to each other that, that it doesn't scare us when we have to talk about hard things sometimes. So that's a, a little practical thing. We need each other here. You can't just manufacture this stuff. You can't just make it happen. It's a lifelong journey that we're all on together. And the second practical thing, the most important thing, is before any of us can show this kind of love to others, we have to receive it for ourselves. We have to receive it from Jesus. See, this isn't a worldly love Paul's calling us to. We can't just make it happen. It has to come from God himself first. The parable of the Good Samaritan, it is meant to show us how we love others. It's meant to show us who our neighbors are. It's meant to show us who God is calling us to love. And that means that, that wounded man on the road, well, that represents people we are called to. Our poor, those who are marginalized, those who've been wounded and beat up by the church, those who've been brutalized by this sinful and broken world that we live in. But do you know what else? That wounded man on the side of the road, well, he also represents you. That's the gospel. That apart from Christ, we are doomed. We are bloodied and beaten and destined for a life of pain and misery and death. But Christ is the embodiment of this love. This love that honors others and lifts them up. This love that is not self-seeking, but it is a love that he would take on the greatest cost. That he would put on our, our weakened flesh and bear our, our sin upon himself. That he would even take our place and die outside the city gates so that we could rise to this abundant, joyful, full life like we have never imagined before. A life that begins right now when we come to him, but it lasts forever. And do you know, just like he crossed the road at that moment to bring you salvation, his Holy Spirit, even right now, is going out to you. Right now, in this very moment, he's still going to you. 
He is still washing you and cleansing you and healing you and binding you up and empowering you more and more so that we can love like Jesus. And so if you don't know him this morning, I want to invite you to come. I want to invite you to receive that love. And if you do know him this morning, I want to invite you to the same thing. Confess to him. Let him know about that self-centered heart that you're still wrestling with, that self-seeking that is still in your life. And ask him to give you a new heart that loves like his, that crosses every boundary, that's unafraid of the cost, a heart that is connected to this abundant and joyful love of Christ and that is bonded with his people for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we need this. We're hopelessly lost without this, Lord. We cannot possibly love this way unless you love us first. But God, you have loved us first. Your mercy extends to us at this very moment. Your healing hand is on us, making us whole, healing us, and making us new. Lord, I look so forward to the day when you return, when all of this work is finished, when there are no more misunderstandings, where we all seek your face in unity. But until that day, would you fill us with this other-seeking love? Would you give us the strength to honor you and honor one another? And Lord, would your spirit move? We pray in Christ's name.